Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Green Left Radio. And Jacob and Dennis, good morning. Good morning to you. <laughs> I just rushed in. Sorry about that. A bit of a panic button there. Okay, we've got a packed program today. And the, the format's sort of mucked up a little bit because I couldn't get the interviews at the time that we normally would like. So we have the first hour of news. Yes, indeed. Yes, so and... Go, go, Dennis. We thought that we would uh, start off as usual through with, uh, with with some with some local news. Well, yesterday, uh, sort of fresh, basically yesterday in Melbourne, there, there was an important event held in the Melbourne Town Hall, as the TPP Community and Union Roundtable Coalition held the forum, highlighting the importance of opposing the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, Agreement yes. in Australia and, and New Zealand. So some of the uh, speakers included um, the outgoing Labour MP Kelvin Thompson, as well as um, uh, Samantha Castro from Friend, uh, Friends of the Earth, as well as uh, Jed Carney from the ACTU, mm-hmm. and uh, Deborah Gleeson from uh, the uh, who, who's representing the sort of the medical side of NTP and, uh, and and others. There's someone from New Zealand, yeah. Yes, yes. I've, I, I'm, unfortunately, I cannot recall uh, the, name. Uh, uh, the name. It was quite an excellent... Um, uh, the important thing that was highlighted uh, in the forum was, um, first of all, was uh, not just the undemocratic nature of how the TPP ha- is, is being handled uh, across all the different uh, nations where it is being implemented, but also just the, the separate parts of it do not uh, obviously sort of uh, are designed so as to ignore some of the most relevant uh, problems that exist with capitalism. For instance, Sam Castro mentioned during the forum that in all of the 6,000 pages of the final text of the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, the, the phrase climate change is not mentioned one time. Of course. <laughs> Surprise, mm. surprise. <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, the listen, she, she's the one who highlighted that in all of the text, the, uh, there, are, there are practically no exemptions or the, there are practically no protections uh, designed for, uh, say, the aspects of the public health industry across all nations. In Australia, the only exception being sort of the tobacco health related effects, things like plain packaging. What an interesting forum because there must yeah. be so many issues. As the, just just to give you a break there. Um, the, the person from New Zealand, her name is Jane, Jane Kelsey. Jane, Jane Kelsey, And yes. she's an academic and a TPP container, um, container, campaigner. And they had well, a huge campaign. We had their container. We're trying to contain <laughs> this as well. Thanks. Thanks, Dennis. <laughs> It's all the, the panic this morning was running a little <laughs> bit late. I, I almost left. Sorry, guys. Um, they, they had a big campaign in New Zealand. Yes, And quite did. effective and a strong one, too. Exactly, yeah. Which is unlike here. That nothing seems to be actually public and big here. Nothing is big. Uh, well, in New Zealand, what, uh, as, uh, as Jane explained, 
it was um, it, it was actually it was actually a very strong um, it was it was actually a very strong coalition of local forces right across uh, right across the country and led primarily I say led primarily by uh, community groups and indigenous groups so the Maori, Maori yeah, groups this yeah. is what this is what has been a, a key feature key of the feature, yes. uh, the anti anti TPP movement there it is seen as the as sort of just another uh, just another attempt uh, by the by the country's leaders to uh, to allow foreign companies and foreign corporations mm. to take control of New Zealand of uh, of the land and sovereignty of the of the Maori people and of the uh, the people of uh, of Aotearoa and New Zealand. Yeah, the same thing is going to happen here. And the, and the funny part is not the funny, the insidious part is. We don't know what's in the in the um, agreement, except for the bits and pieces that WikiLeaks released yeah. um, in a the, few months. There was ago. A, there was a uh, there was a full text released finally in mm. February in February, but the fact that it's been kept secret secret for so twelve for so, years for twelve years. Well, yes. it's also like over as far as I understand, it's like over six thousand oh, it's over six thousand um, pages. So you know, it's like for the average kind of person, you know. Even though it's been kept secret, when it's it's out in the open, but it's there's so much information in in it that it's almost impossible to like you know scan the the information that's contained in the green. But you know from you know the information we actually know about the TPP, if people you know in a democratic society, if you know people were actually aware of the implications of what what it actually means for workers, what it actually means for us, no one would be in support of it. But that's why it's a secret. Jason. That's exactly why it's a secret <laughs> because they're, it's um, corporations and governments subverting, you know, democratic processes to basically push in something that is disproportionately not going to um, be in the best interest of anyone. Yeah, well, people are not going to be the decision-making seat as far as this is concerned, and the politicians today are acting as not as just conduits. They almost represent, or well, they do represent, big capital that's pushing this so they can make a larger profit. That's what this is all about. It's going to be a hammering of, of working conditions, a hammering of wages, and all those things. And you already see, you've seen the, the, the precursor to it where you had you know, a big fight on penalty rates. And yesterday the ALP said that mm. it may will not fight a lowering of uh, penalty rates for the Sunday. Sunday and Saturday penalty rights are yes. different. They said, yeah, they, they basically said that they will agree the agree the fair work uh, decision. Exactly, exactly. Anyway, let's move on. It's, yeah. it's just <coughs> oh, most annoying. Indeed, yeah. Now uh, moving on to more uh, local news. In um, well, with the with the election now almost certainly set for July second. Yes. Uh, we are uh, we are we're seriously starting to look into the so the election campaign across the board is starting to ramp up as well as uh, uh, the, co- the coalition Labour Greens. Well, none of them are saying what uh, one of our top candidates, Peter Boyle, is yeah. say, is saying, and he is he, saying. Is he a candidate too? I thought it was Ken Canning was a candidate for the Senate. Yep. Peter Boyle will be the candidate for Sydney. Yep. Okay, keep going. That's what social science. Yes, for social science. And he is saying, let's nationalize the banks. Sounds good to me. <laughs> Jim, as uh, Jim, Jim McCullough writes, uh, writes here from Sydney, let's take the big banks head on over their crimes and their attempts to cover up their massive financial ripoffs and nationalize them under workers and community control. It says in, in, in his statement to the, uh, for the upcoming federal election, 
Uh, Boyle was, was responding to reports the banks were considering a huge advertising blitz against plans by the Greens and the Labour Party to launch a royal commission into banking, banking and finance sectors. The <clears throat> as is on uh, Labour on April 8th, uh, Labour opposition leader Shorten pledged a royal commission to banking finance industry if Labour won the upcoming federal election. The <clears throat> uh, sorry. The, uh, at the same time, the Finance Sector Union, National Secretary Fionn Jordan agreed, saying, when it comes to a Royal Commission, it should be looking at the culture of the corporations and the culture in relation to the sale of products and the pressure, uh, pressure put on employees within, within the organization. The <clears throat> Meanwhile, the Greens have announced uh, that they will move a motion in the Senate in the week uh, in well, in this week, actually, to establish a Royal Commission into the banking sector in the near future. They're challenging Labour to support their motion and to begin process of the public exposure of big banks' crimes as soon as possible. So, we, I, will, I, will likely, I would like to see a, a Royal Commission into banks and finance, financial industry. No chance, no chance. <laughs> it's you know there's no chance. Yes, well... Um, well, they've just approved, what? 200 plus million dollars to um, give to the regulators and the, and the banks are going to regulate themselves and the bank is actually paying for it. They've already um, implemented that alternative plan which means they're going to cover up all the sins of the banks and yes. um, you know the usual stuff. Cover up the, the, the enormous exploitations of the banks and the workers will just not be told what exactly is going on. Or probably, or, or, or either that, or just they might uh, uh, create like a once-off levy for the for the for the banks to pay up and sort of as a bit of a slap on the wrist and yeah, move just on. just just smooth it over, you know, cover yes. it up. Yes, yes, oh, yes. <coughs> yeah. So actually, on the topic of um, banks, actually, there's um, been actually quite a, a bit um, of this um, on campus. Actually, um, there's been quite a lot of um, act- direct action, sort of in fossil-free divestment campaigns on university. Um, just only at Melbourne Uni um, on Wednesday, the 20th of April, um, April 20th, and, you know, a group of students and, um, and alumni shut down, actually, the University of Melbourne's administration building for 16 hours to basically stand, you know, to call on to the... Because Melbourne Uni um, has, like, a lot of, you know, um, funds and, um, with banks that are... You know, who have invested in very polluting fossil fuels, and so by the end of this action, um, the university has actually agreed to terms that you know that bring the will bring the group closer to um, to divestment. And of course, there's been a lot of you know media about this. You know, there was like a a funny kind of photo of um, some activists sort of lifting their fist up naked in the back, and then it makes the letters fossil free sort of puts it like a sort of message. And um, even in um, University of Queensland also um, just this week had a, a big sort of sit-in and w- which um, led basically of the right Chancellor's which um, led to um, the, uh, the right Chancellor opening, um, basically saying they will speak to the students, which is a step forward. Um, and also I think... Re- um, um, the, the main kind of um, out, what sort of happened was there was a big rally um, in support of at UQ um, for yeah, fossil that was free. good action on UQ actually, yeah. it's yeah. amazing stuff. Yeah, it's um, and um, I think even Australia National University um, 
though I'm not pretty sure they haven't got into sort of any direct action yet, but they are building towards that. The fossil-free sort of clubs are so, um, trying to put the pressure in light of these sort of actions that are happening in Melbourne Uni mm. and UQ to um, start, you know, taking direct action and putting the pressure on um, on the university to divest from fossil fuels. Mm. This is good. And that's amazing, the follow-up from the Panama, Panama Papers too. Yes. The fact that these things are happening and... The 800 Australians on the list in the Panama Papers that was released, and 80 of them were actually non-criminals. So it's interesting how it's all coming together. The crooks all coming together in one gang. <laughs> but mm-hmm. keep going, them. <laughs> Well, from, uh, from opposing fossil fuels to opposing nuclear waste dumps oh, in yes. South Australia. Oh. Renfrew Clark writes, uh, writes here uh, from Adelaide. As a, as a uh, sagging economy... Cruel uh, their electoral chances. The right-wing parliamentarians and power brokers in the Australian Labour Party deci- decided in late 2014 that it was time to ditch a once fiercely defended point of policy. Uh, the party's remaining opposition to the nuclear fuel cycle would have to go. The uh, <clears throat> uh, so the Labour Le- 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 Premier Jay Weatherhill soon came on board, and, then, and by March last year, the state's nuclear, nuclear fuel cycle Royal Commission was underway. Now, uh, so Renfrew, Renfrew continues uh, to write here, uh, storing nuclear waste, uh, in terms of this, nuclear waste, possible, possible nuclear waste storage in South Australia, storing nuclear waste is not just a matter of isolating it and forgetting it. Spent reactor fuel generates significant heat for, uh, for decades, and it's dangerously radioactive for hundreds of, of thousands of years before that. I'll say it again. Hundreds of thousands of years beyond <laughs> that. Yes. Dealing with such materials is a complex engineering problem, problem. And the sites need continuous guarding and monitoring, effectively forever. Throughout the first 120 years of South Australian dump, large amounts of high-level wa- high wastes would not even be underground. Instead, these materials would be in concrete and steel uh, casks on the surface. Between 40 and 65 years, as much as 70,000 tons would be in such temporary above-ground storage. And um, what are the chances of tending these wastes without mishap? Not just during the 100-odd years when shipments will be accepted, but throughout the, uh, the eons beyond. The records of the nuclear industry to date is not that reassuring. And uh, Renfrew also, also gives, uh, gives some important reference to some of the European accidents uh, that have taken place with regards to the um, uh, attempts at uh, constructing nuclear waste dumps elsewhere. In 2005, it was found that uh, repeated leaks from the French facility at La Hague in Normandy have left ground, groundwater, groundwater with radioactivity levels up to 90 times the, pres- the prescribed limit. And at us in northern Germany, 126,000 drums of low and intermediate level waste were deposited from 1967 in an an abandoned salt mine. And by 2011, technical problems had forced the decision to remove the materials at a final cost projected to be many billions of euros. This looks absolutely criminal. And given the TPP, you can imagine what's going to happen it's yes. going to be ten times worse because workers will be totally, well, people in general will be totally disenfranchised from any of the decision-making um, processes, and especially indigenous people. 
So it's all mm. connected, isn't it? Absolutely. In, in the way it's, it's panning out. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, the well, t- n- n- you know, like, the problem with nuclear waste dumping itself, it's a, it's a global problem, but it is especially it is especially it's especially serious and especially uh, sensitive here in com- in countries like Australia or, con- or the mm. countries like you know, New Zealand or other places. That this is also a question of land rights. That's as well, right. as well, Absolutely. and uh, uh, land rights and sovereignty. That's right. It's all connected in that in that exactly. fashion. And the fact that the, in New Zealand the Maoris have kicked up about the TPP, it's, it's it's this sort of stuff that happens. And and Australia seems to be so bent on nuclear power, given the the science uh, science um, professor um, Dr. Finkel, who has become advisor to the government, he's pro nuclear, and that's really frightening. Mm. That the top scientist advising the government is pro nuclear. What next? Mm. Given this sort of uh, dumping, you know, they have been pushing for nuclear power as well, although ki- the people keep saying it's a, it's a dead debate. But I would be surprised if it's rekindled once the DPP is signed, which is not too many months away from now. They should be signing it fairly soon, I'd say. Both parties have agreed to it. Yes. As I remember Penny Wong uh, saying in Parliament that DPP will bring the um, more work for workers, there are more jobs, and it's good for the economy. So that, that fervor of whipping up uh, profit-making under the guise of growth for the economy, whenever they say growth, you think profits. I always replace growth with profits. But that's how they think. Yes. How do they sell it? By replacing one word for the other, making it euphemistic, and trying to fool the people. But anyway, that, that's just frightening to think that, that nuclear dumping is going to be big because after Fukushima and Chernobyl, Yes. It is not looking good. Not looking good at all for nuclear, and, and especially considering that now um, uh, the renewable energy sector, uh, renew, re- renewables have, uh, have become, are actually starting to become much cheaper than coal yes. throughout, the, uh, thr- throughout the world. It's even less. <laughs> you would you, come to think that maybe it, even for the so-called free marketers, even, even they should be getting the, uh, the message. Yeah. It's, it's funny, isn't it, how they don't seem, it doesn't seem to sink for them. Yes. Yeah. yes exactly. You can make a bigger profit out of it. Mm. From making profits from nuclear waste dumping to making profits from exploiting tenants in private housing. Mm. How hard can it be to find a room to rent, writes uh, Zebedee Parks in Resistance in Action. Uh, I moved to Sydney at the start of this year. For once, I have spent every Sunday... I'm not working, rushing around the inner west, being interviewed as a flatmate, only to suffer rejection after silent re- rejection. That's right. I, sta- I started uh, by, by scoring all the share host platforms from Gumtree to Facebook groups, but seeing dozens of, co- of comments appear on listing within an hour of it uh, going up makes me wonder, how the hell do you compete with this level of demand? The, uh, the mixture... My mixture of full-time work, engagement with social justice issues, and rental history netted me about one reply to every ten messages, usually from people looking for, looking for left-leaning creative piece. And in Ultima, where I work, the demand is at least eight, eight to one, with an average price of a room of more than three hundred dollars a week. That's ridiculous, isn't and it? I've seen. How can yeah. anyone afford that? Yeah. Yeah. And the video continues. Also, I've seen I've seen rooms listed at four hundred dollars and above, and they still get a flood of responses. And this is comparable in most suburbs close to the city, such as Newtown and and Glebe. 
Yeah. Well, I actually thought um, the price of housing was actually um, of was bad in in Melbourne, but you know, in Sydney, I would say it's on a totally different level. Actually, I wanted to sort of um, shift um, you know the news away from you know local mm-hmm. um, um, to talk more about sort of international. Um, issues, especially in the United States. There's been quite a lot actually happening recently. Yes, that was a bit of a defeat, wasn't uh, it? So, yeah, very <laughs> depressing result, you know, um, for Bernie Sanders in the New York primaries because, you know, I was watching some of the speeches and there was actually a lot of exciting momentum mm-hmm. um, in his campaign in New York. But actually an article in Telesur actually just got um, posted like yesterday. Um, but apparently um, New York has a sort of uh, a closed primary system, um, basically meaning that only voters registered with a party can vote. And this is where it gets even more problematic. I mean, the, um, there was a deadline to register um, with the party was made back in October 2015, oh, which boy. is... Um, so basically around over 126,000 people were unable to vote in the mm. New York um, City primaries, which it's... It can be, it's incredibly problematic in a lot of ways because, you know, the deadline is actually quite ridiculous when you consider that Bernie Sanders has actually only joined the Democratic Party quite recently. Mm. And so, um, a lot of people. Sorry, Bernie Sanders has always been a Democrat. No, yeah, it's, it's, no. it's, it's, it's complicated. It's complicated. He's, he's always, he's always caucused, he's caucused with the Democratic Party, but, but officially being full, completely. Yeah. Member of the of the of the, of the yeah. Democratic Party wasn't until last year. Yeah. So so he he only joined the Democratic Party last year. So a lot of people um, back in October 2015 wouldn't have known about yes. Bernie Sanders. And yeah. So anyway, there's sort of extra news there. Yeah. I wasn't aware of. Yeah. And you wanted to start. You want to say something, Dan? Well, uh, Jacob, weren't you at that forum uh, last night? Oh, yeah, there Corbin w- and uh, yeah, there was a forum at um, New Hampshire um, Bookshop, Bookshop yesterday yes. about the rise Corbin. of the parliamentary left. Um, it was uh, not really much sort of information. It was a sort of good discussion, really, about yeah. the rise of um, Bernie Sanders and Corbyn. Um, some of the topics that sort of um, popped up is like, you know, the limitations of how far can say, Bernie Sanders and Corbyn go um, in with Sanders. He's facing all this opposition from the very undemocratic... Um, Processes and the way the election system is, yep, is totally yes. rigged, especially in New yep. York. It's particularly rigged in New York. A lot of the black voters were disenfranchised. There are a lot of complaints being lodged um, by the fact that they ha- were not allowed to vote for all sorts of funny reasons. And thousands of people were just complaints for yeah. whatever. I think there's um, lawsuits actually being yes. put in response yes. to what happened yeah. in New York. Yes, and I think uh, Sanders was a bit depleted. On, on, I think he was a bit tired. You know, worked so hard. He was losing his voice, and he was probably shocked at the defeat. Um, the fact that it was so rigged against him and towards Clinton was, I think, it dawned on him all of a sudden at this stage because he's won seven out of the previous eight. But he's got five to go. But they say that um, even if, just talking on the system, as rigged as it is, even if Clinton did badly in the next five, she'll still get the uh, nomination because of the delegates and, and, and the numbers will stack up against Sanders. So anyway, sorry, the yeah. political, the yeah. political um, you know, talks behind it is obviously 
But and then San, one of the um, going to which I relate to these sort of two news articles. Um, basically, uh, there's been uh, there was a been a huge teacher strike in yes, um, in Chicago. Yeah. Um, you know. It's quite ex- as someone who's studying to be a teacher. It's actually quite exciting to see um, lots of teachers, you know, mobilise against austerity. Um, there's actually the funny thing because they've been. Um, I think there are laws in America that actually make it um, illegal for teachers to sort of strike mm. for any sort of political bans. They can only strike on the condition of pay, except. The whole it's kind of funny because the whole thing about you know pay and austerity is actually they're they're not disconnected issues. Yes. Well, uh, I uh, actually sort of this week I got a chance to interview uh, uh, Jeremy Small, Jeremy yes. Small from from Social Alternative, who recently returned from um, from the US. Yes, uh, I heard that. Himself, uh, plastic, plastic together, yeah. It, it was. And the, the, way, the way he told me is that the, the teachers' union uh, kind of is, is kind of, kind of uh, it doesn't doesn't only have sort of a radical tradition of uh, of, of, you know, of you know of, of organization and militancy, but in Chicago area, in particular, the um, they they carried out a uh, a one a, a one day um, uh, walkout and, stri- and strike on April on April first. So there was twenty five thousand. 25,000 teachers walked out of a job, and 400,000 students decided to kind of su- uh, su- uh, support uh, su- uh, support that. And uh, Jeremy was telling me that uh, Jeremy was telling me that um, it was the level of organization and uh, I'll say political consciousness of the, of the teachers during the strike was incredible. Like they could, uh, like the, it was it was quite it was quite obvious that they were. It was quite obvious that they were. Um, they knew exactly that they were not. Simp- they were sort of not not simply striking for better uh, conditions for for teachers, but actually against the against the public uh, the education policies and austerity that has been that has been implemented mm. by the sort of the Illinois state government and by the Democratic. Illinois State, yeah. state, state government, Ram, Ram and Ram and the policies of Ram Emanuel. So yep. the, uh, I'll say, well, even uh, being sort of the neoliberal Democrat, mm. that's, uh, who is uh, the, the mayor, the mayor of uh, of Chicago there. Yeah. Well, sort of fact about um, uh, you know, the education system in America is there's this whole thing about um, basically they sort of defund and make public schools, um, they defund them so much that you know. No one wants to send their children to public schools, and it basically opens up the, um, them to be turned into charter schools, which mm. is basically sort of it's basically privatization. But exactly, um, so it, it's uh, they basically you know open up you know make, defund these public schools through you know austerity and cut so much that they that it opens up this sort of opportunity for them to be sort of privatized, and it's yeah. taken away these schools away from that from public hands. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And um, uh, another another very important uh, labor struggle that's been taking place in uh, in the United States between the Verizon workers, the, communi- the communication workers in Maryland. Mm-hmm. Nearly 40,000 of them uh, walked off the job on April 13th. And joined by U.S. presidential candidate Bernie Sanders, they protested mm-hmm. a lack of progress in uh, contract talks uh, more, than eight, more than eight months after their agreements with the, uh, with the company expired. And uh, Sanders actually joined the protests um, 
uh, outside Verizon's offices in New York City and, yeah, said the, and said the workers were displaying courage by standing up to the tele- telecommunications uh, giant. Yes, they won't it was good, wasn't it? The, the way yeah, he did it yeah. was excellent. And I, th- and I think, I think it's also important to, to, um, to highlight uh, the fact that the labor movement, sort of with the Sanders, parallel to, to the growth and the, the emergence of the Sanders phenomenon, we also have the, uh, this, this new energy being put into the labor mo- movement mm. in the U.S. Uh, I mean the that's, US. that's very significant. The nurses mm. apparently have been very active supporting Sanders. They've got a bus. Yes. You know, that's, we support Sanders' bus, and they've been driving around uh, the yes. U.S. campaigning for him, which is amazing. They've always been a radical bunch, and that's what's happening at the moment. Yes. But for those who have just tuned in, you're listening to Green Left Radio. And we have Jacob, Dennis, and Lalita at the helm here for you. We were about to go into an interview with uh, Chris Tanti. I'll just play a bit of a break before um, we move on to that. You are listening to Green Left Radio on the Friday morning breakfast show, broadcast live on 3CR Radio, 855 AM digital, and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Greenleft Radio is brought to you by the Greenleft Weekly Newspaper, providing a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment before profit. Subscribe to Greenleft Weekly by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues. And welcome back to Green Left Radio. We have Chris Tanti, who is the CEO of Headspace, um, on the line here for a quick interview about the state of mental health for teenagers. Morning, Chris. Good morning. Welcome to Tricia, and thank you for agreeing to talk to us. Um, y- you guys have put out a um, press release about this. What's the urgency all of a sudden? Well, we've... Uh We've developed, uh, we're starting a new campaign today on the importance of uh, fathers and sons, well, fathers in particular being involved in the mental health of their children. And we know that mostly uh, women take the responsibility for the social and emotional well-being of, um, children of young people. <laughs> yes. and, uh, and we're sort of trying to turn that around and uh, because we know that, Fathers play a really important role, and we know that um, in, in lots of ways, fathers can be absent from those discussions. We know that men find it difficult to have those, you know, discussions around how they're feeling and um, and what they're going through, particularly when it comes to health and mental health. So we're trying to turn that around. Mm. Well, one of the questions I want to ask you is: Is this Phenomena, the, the rise of mental health issues for teenagers, uh, a recent, uh, more significant, it become more significant recently, or has it been sort of growing over the last couple of decades? Well, I mean, you know, the, 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 in lots of ways, people say, well, you know, we're, we're talking about it more, and so therefore there is a, the reporting of mental health problems is increasing, and others say that um, it's just the, the prevalence is increasing. I, I think it's probably a combination of both, uh, you know, and uh, and so it's, but, but it is hard to know, and in a sense, it's sort of not that important. Um, what what's important is that. You know, as a community, we're better at identifying uh, mental health as an issue for the community more broadly. Uh, we know 
in respect of young people, that it is suicide is the leading cause of death of young people. So we know we have a significant problem, and this is true not just in Australia, this is true globally. That suicide is, you know, in, in terms of the United States, it's probably the second uh, leading cause of death. But when you think about uh, road accidents and, and in America, people drive at a younger age, um, that that you know, if, if we were on par, it would it would be the leading cause of death. So this is a this is a global sort of Western phenomenon, if you like, and um, and we just need to get better at uh, having the conversation about it. And we know that people find it hard, particularly men, find it very very hard to talk about their mental health. And so the campaign is really about encouraging men and young boys to talk to each other. It's interesting you talk about men, and I've always felt that um, it's men's mental health has been largely ignored, not ignored, but has been less significant as a, the system as a whole doesn't address it as well. And you, you find that women tend to go to the doctors more, and men tend to go to the doctors less, and there's a macho culture. And then you've got on the top of that layers of, of social issues like homelessness and the, the, the drug-taking culture that has been come to the fore over the last couple of decades. Um, there's a whole combination of factors that seems to affect young people. Like I read a, I read a statistic which said like 12,000 young people actually don't go to school any, any one given day in Victoria. I mean, yeah. what's, what's, what's your assessment on that sort of issues, and are there any uh, you know, ways in which Headspace addresses those issues? Well, I, th- I think young men, uh, I think men uh, generally are terrible at help seeking. They yes. are terrible at going to the doctor to attend to um, physical health problems, let alone mental health problems. Mm, mm. And, uh, you know, I, I, I hear this all the time from, uh, from women that, uh, you know, they know something's wrong with their partner, generally, physically wrong, but they just can't get them to the doctor. Mm. We don't, as a community, prioritise men's health, and yep. we know that the health system is completely under-resourced, yes. uh, and and as the population ages, it's going to get worse, and it's going to cost us more. Um, so in lots of ways, we don't encourage help-seeking because we don't want to increase the burden on the system, but um, we do need to do something about it. We, uh, Particularly when it comes to mental health, this is a significant problem. Um, so it is hard enough for men to talk about health problems, but it's almost impossible for them to talk about mental health problems. And, uh, you know, and the healthy option here and uh, the fastest option is to actually have the discussion because we know, and women know this really well, actually, that the tension comes out of the situation once you start talking about it. Uh, and, and you open yourself up to the possibility of solutions because you're engaging people on that, in that process and, you know, everyone has a different idea about how you might want to proceed. I think the important thing in all of that is that once we hear these problems from our friends, from our children, etc., if we think we can't cope with them, if we think that we, uh, we don't have the skills to deal with what they're presenting with and we think it's probably too complex for us, it's important to know where to get help. And this is the other major challenge, that people don't know where to get help. Um, it's not clearly signposted in the community, which is why Headspace uh, spends a lot of time promoting services because we want young people to know where our services are. Because once they identify a problem, they need to know where to go and help them solve the problem.
And how do people get to know about Headspace? How do, sorry? How do young people know about Headspace? I mean, you know, advertised out there big, big time. Beyond Blue is a, the a bigger leading mental health um, support organization. Headspace is a little harder to come by. Yeah, it is. I mean, we spend a lot of our time, we don't have a, a huge advertising budget, so we rely on the goodwill of radio stations such as 3CR <laughs> yes. uh, to help us, uh, help us uh, promote these, uh, these programs. But um, we generally will target, uh, we generally will use social media and, um, and there is a reasonable recognition of Headspace as a brand, if you like. Within, you know, within the, the youth community, within the youth sector. So about, there's, there's about 70% recognition of what, of who Headspace is within that, uh, population, but it's much lower for, for parents and it needs to be high, you know, it needs to be as high as it is for Beyond Blue and lots of ways. And the reason it does need to be high is because, you know, the, once, once people have identified they've got a problem, they need to be able to get help. And if they don't get help, then people become despondent and, um, and, and you've lost your opportunity. And, yeah. and with young people in particular, you've got a very short window because they've got a lot going on and they move about a lot. So, uh, if you can't meet their needs quickly, uh, you know, you, you, you may have lost them. So um, it's really important that we promote our services. Yes, we hear the crows in the background. They're trying to get in on the interviews. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm, I'm having to stand outside in my back garden while, uh, because otherwise you, you won't be hearing the crows. You'll be hearing fighting children. So, oh, dear. Uh, yeah, over, the, over breakfast. Now, the other question I want to ask you is, do you get to go to schools? Because that's the secondary schools are the, are, are the, are the main places you get uh, young people. I, I've got, I'm speaking yeah. from personal experience, and I know my daughter used to say that, um, the, the, there's so many people selling drugs you know, in so many campuses in secondary schools and so many kids are afflicted with mental health issues because of this particular phenomenon, not the only one, but one of them. Yeah. And the yeah. other issue that, that pushes young kids onto the streets who are then vulnerable to mental health issues are, is domestic violence. So two main yeah. factors contributing to it. And how do you guys tackle that? Really good question. Um, <laughs> we have a we have a program. This is the hardest interview I've done all morning. Yes. Um, we have the uh, we have the we have a schools program. So one of the things that I've been clear about since starting Headspace, and I was the first CEO of the organisation we started ten years ago, is that there were lots of gaps in the system for uh, people to fall through. So not only did we have services. Um, but the services didn't talk to, you know, to the other parts of the service system like education where we knew young people were. Um, and, and the other thing we needed to do was make sure that we had an online offering because we knew that young, um, young people were on, online and they were likely to use an online service. Yes. So what I've tried to do in Headspace is sort of uh, fill those gaps, if you like, and so schools work is is really really important. So we run a suicide prevention and postvention service in in schools, and unfortunately, given the given the number of suicides that occur on a weekly basis, we are spending most of our time working with schools around a suicide and and supporting that community. So uh, schools work is really really important. Um, we don't do a lot of work in in domestic violence, but we certainly see young people who um, who have come from.
from a background of domestic violence where domestic violence is prevalent in their home. And I guess it would just be one of the many um, issues that we attend to in Headspace Centres. And um, obviously we... um, you know, we advocate at a policy level in this space. So it's a it's a really important question, and Sarah, and uh, and it's a very complex area. Yeah, because I work with um, young people, and I work in the Aboriginal community as well. So I come across not just generic teenagers, but uh, kids from the Aboriginal community as well, where there is this this phenomena of domestic violence, especially when the state government has. Um, allocated money towards domestic violence if you guys have been funded to carry out the work in your area of work? Yeah. Yeah, we, we haven't specifically got funding to... Uh, we, we specifically don't have funding in this area. But, That's a real uh, shame, yeah. Yeah, look, it is, it is a shame. And I, and I think, you know, I think one of the difficulties with the service system is that, you you know, Local government, state government, Commonwealth government. Yes. A whole lot of NGOs. Complicates, yes. It's, it's a really complicated service it's system. It's a nightmare. It is a nightmare. It's a, it's a nightmare for us as practitioners and, um, and workers, but it's a real nightmare for young people. And, um, and right across the age range, I must say, right across the lifespan, people find it difficult to know how to get services, so they just go to the emergency department because they know where they are. Mm. Um, but there's a whole range of other services. And, and Headspace was largely uh, designed to try and fix that problem. So you, you, you bolt in a whole lot of other community services into this simple entry point that, you know, is very visible in the community. So, um, I, you know, I think we've got about 10 more years before we simplify the system, but it is very hard in a backdrop of, you know, all the different funding streams and, yes. uh, you know, getting people to work together is, is enormously challenging. Mm. But keep up the good work. I have thank to say you very much that, and um, keep up your good work. And, and thank you for letting us um, having this important discussion. Um, and where can people get hold of information about, about Headspace? I know the Internet's available. Um, yep. It's on the Internet. And is there anywhere else they can get information about Headspace? Well, the, the best place to go is the internet. So okay. headspace.org.au and if you want online counselling, it's eheadspace.org.au. Um, from the website, you will get a whole lot of information around mental health problems and, uh, and you know, the developmental needs of young people. And then you will also find out where the Headspace centres are and we've got, you know, we've got 89 scattered around the country. And uh, so... And it, it, Sorry, and you focus. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, go on. No, this can you focus on teenagers? Can fathers ring into? Yes, absolutely. This is what we're encouraging people to do. We want families to call through, and and certainly we do get a lot of that. So, clinically, we see people 12 to 25, but we always work with families. So there is a real opportunity for fathers to reach out and um, and get the support. They need to have these conversations, and and also once the conversation commences, you know how to how to manage it. Thank you so much, Chris. That's very informative, and I hope people out there who need your help have got the information they need to get on to seeking help if they need one. Thank you very much. Thanks, Chris. Have a good day. Cheers. Bye. And that was Chris Tanti, the CEO of Headspace. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry, Sorry, can you? Yep, and um, anyone there who knows of young people or 
males in particular, the campaign is focusing on males at the moment, um, who wish to get in touch, get on the Internet, and you will find yourself a spot to seek help from. So before we go on to the next interview, maybe you guys want to do a couple of announcements, and I will go and get um, the next interview on the line. I'm on the lot. Oh, yeah. So in terms of um, upcoming announcements, um, there will be um, in support of the continuing occup- um, occupation on Bendigo Street um, in Collingwood, they'll, um, the, um, for the you know, Houses Need People, People Need Houses sort of campaign, um, on the... T- on the tw- this Sunday, there will be um, a street party to build um, momentum for the campaign. It will be at two. Um, it will be two p.m. Um, starting at two p.m. at um, set. It will be at, which is at two Bendigo Street at the actual occupation itself, and it will. Um, yep, we'll just. It will be. It will be this Sunday at two p.m. at Bendigo Street, and to get there, you have to um, go to Collingwood and um, take the train station to Victoria Park. Yes, and also as a follow-up on the uh, Corbyn and Sanders discussion at the International Bookshop, on uh, April 28th there will be uh, another important forum coming up, a left Q&A after Paris, where to now for the environment movement. This will take place at the New International Bookshop at Trades Hall at 54 Victoria Street at 7 p.m. on April 28th. Some of the panelists uh, include uh, Hans Baer, who is the Associate Professor at Melbourne Uni and a member of Socialist uh, Alliance, as well as uh, Nicola, Nicola Paris from, the, from uh, Counteract, uh, uh, Anitra Nelson, who is the professor, Associate Professor at RMIT, and David Pratt, who is a prominent uh, climate campaigner and author of Climate Code Red. So pretty, it seems like a pretty good lineup uh, coming up there. Uh, also, also on uh, on May 3rd we have a very important um, uh, very important forum coming up uh, over at the resistance center uh, the social social sciences are holding a um, is commemorating the uh, 30 years since uh, the 1986 nurses strike and for the political relevance today today this will, this, this will be the May day uh, forum uh, among the speakers is Green Left Radio's very own Lalitha Chilaya, who was the ANF organizer during the strike, as well as Irene Bolger, who was a state secretary uh, during, the, the, during the time of the strike, and Gwyneth Evans, um, uh, who was the health and safety officer uh, during that time as well. So the forum will take place at 6 p.m. over at the, uh, uh, at the multicultural uh, hub, on Elizabeth Street uh, in in Melbourne. Oh yes, so in um, in Narrawarra, and um, there's um uh, on free uh, free city the city of um K um the Casey City Council will meet on um, April um, 26 um, this coming Tuesday to consider the planning application for. A, for a mosque in um, the city of um, in Narawan, there's actually been sort of significant kind of um, campaign by racists to put pressure on the council to reject this um, the mosque um, planning application, irrespective of its merits, because in Narawan there's actually quite a high um, Muslim um, population, and we know it. We're encouraging you know people to attend who live in the area to attend this council um, meeting. Um, you know, because we believe it is important that the residents of the city of Casey and everyone who opposes racism peacefully to attend the council meeting to show the council that there is support for the mosque application in Narawan and that we say no to racism. Mm. 
absolutely. And uh, just and just uh, uh, finally on May um, uh, on May sixth, the um, uh, the 3C, 3CR radio is uh, in, is initiating a book launch. Radical radio, radical radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. And so this will be this will be over at the Bella Union Bella Union Bar on May 6th at 6 p.m. Uh, uh, so the <coughs> sorry, outspoken independent station still gives voice to issues that would otherwise go unheard and and to people striving for political and social justice. So this has been a collective and collaborative uh, writing project across different uh, shows and uh, uh, presenters. So don't uh, uh, so don't uh, uh, miss that on the night. As I'll say on May 6th at 6 p.m. over over the Bell Union Bar in Trades Hall. Okay, we we've got the next person on the phone. Um, this is Anne Morrow, uh, who is from the um, Hobson's Bay. Refugee Network, and she wanted some aspects to talk about a film they're doing as a fundraiser for refugees. Good morning, Anne. Good morning, Lolita. <laughs> and now we've got Jacob and Dennis in the studio with us. Oh, okay. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. <laughs> yes, uh, tell us about this um, film. Look, it's, it's a fantastic film, judging by the overseas reviews. They're raving about it. It's the story, it's called The Man Who Knew Infinity. And it's about a self-taught mathematical genius from India. His name was Srinivasa Ramanujan. And um, he was plucked from obscurity in his um, Indian university and brought to Cambridge University by um, a Cambridge don, a, a Cambridge professor of mathematics. And um, he was brought over. He had to run the full gamut of... Uh, you know, prejudice, racial prejudice and so on. But anyway, he ended up forming a very strong friendship and professional relationship with this um, Cambridge professor and they ended up making huge advances in the science of mathematics. Yes, that's a, I've seen it actually. It was shown, oh, have you? Yes, it was shown at the English Film Festival a couple of months, I think it's in December I saw it. Is, um, oh, was it? Yeah. Ramanujan was, uh, is, is today so relevant that using his material to investigate the black hole, but it is a very um, absorbing film. Now, tell us uh, the the fundraiser. Tell us more about the fundraiser. Well, the fundraiser is at the Sun Theatre. The Sun Theatre is giving us a preview uh, night, and that's going to be um, uh, next Friday, Friday the 29th of April. And um, we we gather together at 6.30. We go into the film at 7 o'clock. lasts about an hour and a half. The, the Yarraville Sun Theatre is right next door to the Yarraville station. So anybody who wants to come by train, in fact, that's what I'd advise. You just get out of the station and then you're right there at the theatre. The tickets are 22 bucks because we're raising funds for the asylum seeker families that we help in the western region. And you book through Try Booking. Can I read out the Try Booking booking code? Sure. Lolita? Yes, yes, go ahead. So www.trybooking.com slash capital K-U-C-L. 
Okay, cool. Now, the... the and if you forget that, you just ring... You just... Um, you can get it through clicking on Try Booking. And, yes, it's uh, easy. It'll be up there with the other yeah. things that they're supporting. That's right. Try Booking is quite easy. You just go, go, go to the website yes. and follow the prompts where it says buy, right. buy a ticket and then you put the event, name of the event in and it's, it's not right. very hard to negotiate. That's now, right. Now, what is it that, you, that the Hobson's Bay Refugee Network mm-hmm. and the other organization that's doing with this Welcome with Welcome Wagon. Now, that's we're right. running this... this uh, we work with West Welcome, Rag, uh, West Welcome Wagon. We're two... Um, Hobson's Bay Refugee Network is a, is a small... Um, organization West Welcome Wagon is larger than we are but we work together on things like um, transporting renovated and second-hand furniture to asylum seekers who've moved out of detention and whom we've managed to get into low-cost private rental accommodation and once you do that of course you have to you have to um, furnish the houses, and we do that with donated goods, with um, renovated um, white goods, and right down to toys for children. And then um, we work together on other on other aspects of these poor people's lives. These are the uh, the asylum seekers um, who who are, who now number nearly 30,000 in the Australian community who have only temporary visas. Nobody knows what's going to happen to them. The government imagines that it's going to send many of them back to where they came from, but that's just not a possibility. You know, you get governments like Iran who are saying, no, we're not taking anybody back. So what do we do with with the many Iranian asylum seekers that have fetched up on our doorstep? We have to look after them. Um, and so uh, between us, West Welcome Wagon and Hobson's Bay Refugee Network support them materially. Uh, the network also advocates for them both at a political and a, and a personal level. They need a lot of personal help, help finding um, doctors um, who will treat them for not too much money, um, um, English classes, they, they don't have any entitlement like previous generations of migrants did. The Australian government used to pay for um, English classes for them. They don't in the case of these asylum seekers. So they're struggling to learn the language. Some of them now have work rights. A lot of them now have work rights, but without English language, very difficult to find a job. Um, some of them are traumatised from the experiences they've had in the getting here, and so um, we sometimes have to find uh, mental health services and support in, in that way. Bikes, we supply them all with bikes. We've got a great retired farmer who who uh, renovates bikes to um, wonderful safety standards, and we give them a bike and a that changes their lives in many cases. We've got a school education fund happening as well, and we help the kids get into find schooling, get into school, and then we equip them, um, or we contribute anyway, towards the costs of their equipment, uh, amongst which is these very, very expensive um, 
personal digital devices like electronic notebooks and so on that they have to have now when they when they get into um, when they reach secondary school year seven in other words and so um, this this film is very apt because it's about mathematics and the kids <laughs> <laughs> the kids who who do maths on their notebooks and uh, personal digital devices and so on um, and who can't afford this equipment uh, we we help with the purchase of Sounds that so that's great. a nice fit yeah. Sounds like you're doing a fantastic job so let's run through the details one more time yes thank you up. The Man Who Knew Infinity it's at the um, Sun Theatre in Yarraville, Ballarat Street Yarraville but best come by train because the theatre is right next door to the railway station. Uh, the ticket, tickets are $22 and you get those, oh, I didn't give you, Friday, Friday the 29th of April, come at 6.30 and you can have a drink before going into the theatre. You can take your, your um, glass of wine or whatever you want to drink into the theatre. And the tickets are obtainable from Trybooking, Trybooking, com slash K-U-C-L. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you, Lolita, for giving uh, us the opportunity to promote it. Very hard for community groups to get... To get uh, this kind of opportunity, and we're really grateful to you. Thanks so it's much. Our pleasure. That's what the station does. You know, get. Yes, um, it, does. <laughs> it does. And um, I hope you have a, a, a good great. showing and a good fundraising for the absolutely wonderful work you're doing. Thank you, Lalita. Good morning. Bye bye. Bye. That was Anne Morrow from the Hobson's Bay Refugee Network and West Walker Megan, who are jointly showing a movie to help refugees settle into Australia. So, mm -hmm. any more announcements on news, guys, before I give the next interview? In terms of news, uh, something, uh, an important, another important piece that's, uh, that, I, that I want to mention is that over in, uh, over in Canada, we've he been hearing some positive news with regards to the, um, to the unification of the different environmental and uh, environmental uh, groups there. So LEAP Manifesto has, has been launched, as John, John Riddle writes here from, uh, from Toronto. 500 Toronto area supporters crowded into West End School Auditorium on March 29th to support the LEAP Manifesto launched for support of a rapid, justice-based energy transition to a renewable economy. And the movement was launched to help popularize the ideas of Naomi Klein's influential book on climate change. This changes everything. As Klein pointed to the need for a mass social movement addressing the urgent need for climate action and an agenda for social justice. And the Leap Manifesto calls for varied measures towards a, global, a, global, a goal of, of, of a society, caring for one another and caring for the planet. The list is headed by... Uh, respect for indigenous people's inherent rights and title uh, to land, immediate action for 100% clean economy by 2050, and a whole to infrastructure projects that lock us into increased extraction decades into the future. Well, it's, it's, really good, it's really good to see um, this changes everything, uh, really getting in, uh, helping, to, helping to bring about all these grassroots 
in action in Canada. Yeah, it's um that or well, the whole thing <coughs> with the Leap Manifesto. Um, there's um it sounds quite exciting that there's they're actually having this sort of discussion about you know a just transition yes. to um um to a sort you know uh, a renewable sort of you know job because the, there's been this sort of thing that you know, um you know the right have always sort of tried to capitalise it to sort of you know or basically um the Greens are you know, greeny groups are trying to take your jobs, they're trying to mm. shut down, you know, coal yeah. mines and you know, you're going to lose your jobs. That's why you have to vote against, you know, the these environmental groups because they're basically trying to take away your jobs and when in reality, you know, the evidence actually shows that you, that renewable, uh, the renewable industry would actually create more jobs than, yes. you know, the, out, the, the kind of outdated, you know, the fossil fuel. That's right. And um, it's... Uh, <laughs> It's, it's, it's not just the um, uh, it's not just uh, the fact that the manifesto is putting up uh, the concept of uh, just transition, but also helping to helping to bring about so many groups as well uh, together as as among apart from the sort of environmental and indigenous groups who are present in the meeting, there was also. So the other speakers were from the, 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 the two members of parliament from the New Democratic Party and one from the governing Liberal Party, as well as, as, well as union leaders from the postal and public service, um, postal and public sector uh, unions there too. So I feel like this, this is kind of what, what would be a great follow-up here in Australia. After the, uh, in Australia here, it would be a good follow-up to the TPP forums and yep. the, uh, the forums against free trade agreements. Yeah. Okay. Are you done? Yes. Okay. We've got <laughs> Vanessa Herman on the phone. Wonderful. And Jacob's going to have a chat to her about um, Indonesia and the conference uh, Vanessa's going to address. Yeah? Yeah. Hold on a sec. Morning, Vanessa. Yeah. Morning, Vanessa. Morning, Mali. <laughs> That's Jacob and Dennis are in the studio and we'll all be listening and maybe even asking questions. Yeah, All yours, Jacob. So, yeah, um, um, you're, you're going to be speaking at um, the Socialism for the 21st Century Conference, um, which is happening um, May 13th to May 15th, um, talking about, you know, um, the fifth... Um, um, the 15th sort of anniversary of the kind of 1965 um, anti-communist violence in Indonesia. Um, I kind of wanted to sort of ask, you know, what is sort of the your kind of knowledge, you know, the background of um, for your your talk that you'll be giving at um, Socialism for the 21st Century. Okay, well, the 1965-66 killings in Indonesia remains one of the largest instances of mass violence um, of the 20th century that is still unresolved really until today in terms of the government of Indonesia and what it intends to do for the victims of that violence. So uh, half a million people were killed and about 600 to 750,000 more were imprisoned for varying lengths of time because of their association with the Communist Party that was in 1965 accused of having been involved in a coup attempt which then the military used as a pretext to seize power in Indonesia under uh, Major General Suharto who then went on to become Indonesian president for 32 years and he was then toppled in 1998. <clears throat> so that's <clears throat> when he was toppled, that was when Indonesia began to try and uh, really seriously think about what to do about his past 
and lots of human rights activists and victims groups and so on are um, intent on trying to get the government of President Joko Widodo, um, who's in power at the moment, to do something decisive about this path. Yeah. So what, what is, um, in terms of like, you know, today, what is sort of like, what is sort of like the prospects, you know, in terms of like obt- obtaining sort of justice for the victims of today? What, like what is sort of happening on the ground in, in Indonesia in terms of like social mm-hmm. movements? Yeah. Yeah, well, so in the last, this week alone, on the 18th and 19th of April, the government, uh, with, in conjunction with, uh, different civil society groups, held a, uh, a symposium, national symposium on 1965, looking at historical perspectives. And that's quite a breakthrough to think that the government is willing to hold something like that. And of course, within that symposium, uh, elements of the government, such as the Minister for Politics and Security, uh, Luhut Pandetan, came out and said, oh, you know, he doubted whether there were any mass graves and how many people actually were killed anyway. There were still views like that that were still uh, maintaining, you know, wanting to maintain the fiction that the mass killings didn't really happen. But there were also some really encouraging signs with um, other members of the government bureaucracy coming out and saying what victims want is just a restoration of their rights, a recognition that they've been stigmatised and discriminated against. Um, And it's really quite a a departure to see that happening. So I think we are starting to see some movement on this um, because there's been so much pressure on the government over the last 18 years or so (coughs) since the, um, the ushering in of the democratic era in Indonesia. Um, do you two have any sort of questions? Mm. Uh, Vinay says uh, the, the new developments look very encouraging, but there's still um, repressions going on in Indonesia, though. Isn't that the reality? Yes. And so that's what my talk at the conference actually will look at. Is um, It's called From Bukitinggi to the Hague. Now, Bukitinggi <clears throat> was a small town in West Sumatra. And in February last year, 2015, there was the breaking up of a meeting of survivors um, of 1965 and <clears throat> lots of these kinds of events have been going on of uh, so-called civil society groups uh, from the right-wing hardliners who, are, who have come out and broken up meetings that have anything to do with 1965. So certainly last year with the 50th anniversary when the issue was much more visible, it seemed that there were more attacks against um, events that we're going to discuss, the 1965 killing. So I was going to speak at the Upud Writers Festival last year in Bali and our sessions were all cancelled because right. um, we yes. were going to talk about 65. I remember that. I remember that. They've been cancelled. Yeah, it's a big yeah. profile about so it. Yes. It, it, you, you rightly say, it is a very mixed picture and that's what my talk will be sort of looking at is how did the year begin and how did the year end for this 50th commemoration and how, how does the picture look in terms of historical accountability for the Indonesian government? The last questions are, I want to ask you, Indonesia is a unique country. It's a little, bit like, a little bit like the Philippines. It's got hundreds of islands. It always has fascinated me how the Indonesian working class actually organises, <laughs> given that, that dispersed population and is mostly a rural population. Um, yes. Give us a little, a, a quick rundown of how how these organisations actually manage to get people together. Um, <clears throat> how do they 
managed to get people together. Well, as you say again, it's often the, con- the concentration of organising occurs in the big cities in Java, but with the industrial working class, you have a cluster of uh, factories and industry over in Batam, for example, um, off the island of Sumatra. And that's where you see also a high uh, rate of union organising and concentration of union. And in the 65 um, realm of things, we're also seeing that some of the strongest initiatives from civil society that are being supported at the community level and at the local government level are occurring outside of Java. So West Timor... Uh, for example, Central Sulawesi are two areas that are really strong on this on this campaigning. So it is interesting that some of this stuff is, is very local. So some of my work does look at that in terms of, you know, why is the local so powerful mm. that, that the centre can't emulate, you know? Yeah, I sort of have a question because I, um, I've watched, I watched the film um, The Act of Killing um, and it was a very you know, disturbing and kind of shocking film. But what, what, um, one of the sort of points that sort of came out of, um, you know, one of the sort of themes of the act of killing, um, was that, um, you know, from those, the, the massacres were, it kind of implies that some of the massacres occurred because in the sense that the people committing the massacres were able to disassociate themselves from the actual killings, like this sort of, in a, a rage of kind of self, and I wanted to um, sort of, if I'm making sense, what are sort of your like your comments on you know how how they you know how the Indonesian sort of government managed to sort of enforce it's because it's very kind of similar to you know how the Nazis committed the Holocaust. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of points there in what you're asking. <laughs> yes. um, one of which is at the personal level, how do people come to terms with their deeds? And as you say, uh, there are lots and lots of responses. So under the new order, the Suharto New Order government, the authoritarian regime, people felt that they were they had been heroic in committing the violence against the left because it was sanctioned at the time. It was something that that was okay to do. And over time, in what you see in the act of killing, people did um, did feel distressed, but they suppressed these feelings. They felt they were heroic, and that was the way they were celebrated in society. But over time, with the, with the end of the Suharto regime, you also saw people starting to get afraid about the possibilities of things like an international tribunal. So you see a discussion in that film between some of the key protagonists, and one of them said, well, what's going to happen? Well, let them drag us to the international tribunal. So it is. it does loom large in people's minds what might happen if they were to confess to some of these murders. Um, so that's, you know, that's at the personal level. But um, at the government level, it, it's a little bit different again in terms of how to treat this, you know, inconvenient past, I suppose, in terms of, you know, how you, you account for the past killings and so on. So the government tends to say, well, did it really happen? Um, who did it affect? What would have happened if the communists had, had taken power? They would have killed us too. So a lot of these discourses are still alive and well in Indonesia, and that's what you're seeing with the responses, the attacks, against the attempt by uh, human rights NGOs and victims to try and open up this path to get a really strong reaction organised and at a personal level as well. But the organised level is the one that's much more dangerous and has much more um, resources than individual perpetrators. Um, 
<coughs> I'm just trying to think of sort of um, something to sort of conclude. Do you sort of have any? Uh, we're about to sort of um, wrap up with this interview, but do you sort of have any sort of final things you wanted to sort of say? You know, in order to kind of like promote your kind of presentation that you'll be doing um, for a session for oh, the 21st yes. century. Um, well, I hope people come for a start. Um, what I'll be doing is I'll be trying to assess the 50th anniversary commemorations, which was last year, which is I sort of, I've sort of foreshadowed that it, it's a really mixed picture and um, it ends with the International People's Tribunal in The Hague. So I will explore that, that project, that non-government project, to see what impact did it have in terms of putting pressure on the government and what reactions there were to this. So in a way, I, like, I want to start with the attacks in Bukitingi in West Sumatra as a low point, as the beginning of this kind of repression again that people have to face, and then to end it with the, with the Hague uh, International People's Tribunal on 1965, which is an initiative by uh, a group of activists, academics and so on, to see, well, what impact did this have to actually bring Indonesia to um, the, you know, to under the, the microscope of the international community. So it will be a bit of an assessment of the balance sheet of, you know, the 50th anniversary, what did we, what did, what did they achieve, uh, what else is there to do in terms of historical accountability on 1965 in Indonesia. So, um, I, yeah, I, ho- I hope that uh, as many people as possible can come along to the conference. Yeah, I'll be there, so hopefully I'll be able to attend your, your, your session. Well, thank you very much. All right, so in, term, um, in terms of announcements um, for Green Left Weekly uh, um, in upcoming events, there will be uh, Equal Love Speak Out um, at the, um, the Australian Christian Lobby has been attacked um, on the attack against LGBTI people in Australia for some time, from attacking uh, adoption rights, the safe school programs, to equal marriage rights. Um, they're basically a small and bigger fringe group that have way too much influence on uh, politicians, and the claim to be a, a lobby group for Christian groups, so seeing many Christian support equally. Um, am I on the air to make an announcement? Was I always on the air to make an announcement? Yeah. All right, so there'll be a speak-out against um, the Australian Christian lobby. It'll be this um, coming Wednesday, 27, 27th of April, 6.30, starting at 6.30, and it'll be at the Scott, um, Scott's Church, um, 156 Collins Street in Melbourne. Okay, we have Kelly um, on the phone, and she's from Jacob. Yeah, um, you're... Hello, Kelly. How's it going? I'm very well. Good morning. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. So uh, I actually I was um, on the way here to the radio. On the radio, I actually had to. I read a um, you know about the um, article from the Age, um, basically Martin Foley saying that um, your occupation, you that you people should get out of um, out of Bendigo Street because your homeless people need homes. And I'd like to see you know what is. Would you, what is your response to that, such, that slander? Just, just before you say that, Kelly is from a group of people who are homeless, who are currently occupying uh, some empty houses owned by East West Link on Bendigo Street. Sorry, Kelly, we yeah. didn't introduce you yeah. very well there. Yeah, we didn't introduce you, I apologise. <laughs> That's okay. I'll just also add importantly that I'm actually a member of the Homeless Persons Union as well of Victoria. Hmm. Yes. Uh, but, but anyway, yeah, it's pretty ironic, isn't it, that Minister Foley is um, suggesting for the Greens to butt out uh, because she and we are um, preventing this property from housing the homeless. But there's actually homeless people who are actually um, who have actually initiated this action. So that's pretty ironic. Yeah, it's um, very ironic. 
Um, so, um, what is, in terms of like um, how the occupation is going, I, from my understanding there was a sort of public um, meeting um, last weekend and what, what sort of like came out of that meeting in terms of where the movement is going? Jeez, um, we've been here now, what, 23 days and it's so hard remembering what happens from day to day. Um, you know, you're actually living in the public eye and um, people coming and going all the time, there's developments happening all the time. So the last public meeting we had, um, yeah, seems like a while ago now, but I can tell you about the one that's coming up on Sunday, if you like. Yeah, that'd be great. So yeah, we're having one here at uh, 2 p.m. We're going to be having uh, speakers from the occupation talk about um, what has been occurring over the past 23 days and where we, uh, why we are still here and what we've heard from the government and other parties that are involved in this property at number two Bendigo Street. We'll also have speakers from Friends of Public Housing who will, talking, who will talk about the clear differences between public and community housing. Um, we're trying to organise some more speakers and there'll be food and entertainment. And the thing is that The Age actually put our Facebook event on its um, page, on its, in, on its article um, online. Uh, and so we don't know how many people are going to show up. It's been made that public. Yeah, that sounds uh, that sounds excellent. Um, so, um, uh, any sort of because um, um, what is sort of um, ha- there's a leaflets out for this event, and you would you be encouraging anyone to come um to come over to the house, you know, over the weekend and try and help um, promote this um event as much as possible before it starts. Absolutely, today and tomorrow, that'd be fantastic. Um, I was going to say, you know, we're trying to keep keep uh, people updated about this this occupation, Bendigo Street. That's really important. We feel that you 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 get the support that you need. Um, is there anything people can do to support you? Um, if they're local, they can come down to the site, and um, we have a wish list. Uh, uh, they can have a look and see uh, the things that we need. They can bring um, food around if they are able to. They can put pressure on the government, really. Um, email, tweet, Facebook Minister Foley or the Premier Daniel Andrews, because they still haven't come out and said what they're doing with all the properties here on Bendigo Street and what they're going to do about all the... Uh, former East West Link properties that they've bought back, tens of them which still remain empty. They haven't addressed what they're going to do about, about the public housing waiting list and about the, the broader homelessness and housing crisis. So there's many, many questions that they have not bothered mm. to um, come out and answer since this occupation and that's why we are still here today. That's great. I think um, you need all the support you can get given that you know there's about 32,000 people who are you know, on the waiting list and there's what 20,000 or so who are homeless and you see people sleeping on the streets these days which I have never seen in Melbourne in the last 30, 40 years I've been here. Mm-hmm. It's amazing and encourage people to um, come and support you and thank you so much for being available yeah. to see you this morning. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Thanks, Kelly. Bye-bye. Sorry, I cut her off there a bit quickly. Sorry to, to, to cut that out, um, but I had something really important we, I think we missed out talking about. It's about the double dissolution trigger, the ABCC. And I think, did you talk about it? I don't no, we didn't, uh, we didn't get a no. chance to talk about it. I think, yeah, it is actually a very important sort of thing. It is <laughs> the important thing. That has been the trigger for this double resolution. I think 
um, the key factor about the ABCC are a few points that um, has been put out in leaflet form. The the CFMEU has put this leaflet out, and it wanted to explain to people exactly what the ABCC is. The Australian Building Constructive Commission was created by John Howard in 2005, and it was abolished in 2012. But now Malcolm Turnbull wants to bring it back, and we wonder why. Now, what does it do? The ABCC has been uh, even more... The ABCC have been given more power than the police. It can... Um, drag workers before the secret tribunal, strip them of their rights to silence and deny them the right to choose a lawyer. If you refuse to attend a tribunal, you can be jailed for up to six months. Under the law, ICE dealers will have even more rights than construction workers. It only affects construction workers, though, right? That's a question. And the answer to that is no. The new ABCC will will be expanded to include anyone who is involved in the construction industry, including the truck drivers who deliver supplies and manufacturers who produce building material. Worse than that, it will also affect their families because of the secrecy provision a worker would be unable to tell his wife that he was interrogated. Next question. But Malcolm Turnbull says that it will increase productivity. That is not true. The claim that the ABCC will make building sites more effective was embarrassingly for Malcolm Turnbull, rebuked by his own productivity commission. Next question. It's worried about union corruption. What will the ABCC do? The answer is nothing. The ABCC only has jurisdiction over industrial disputes. That is issues between the employer and the employees and does not stop corruption. Mm. It's a false premise. Well, Two more questions, and then we can talk. Yeah. Sorry. The next question is, will it create jobs? No. In fact, the building code attached to the ABCC will make it harder for young people and older workers to find work. If enacted, this code will stamp out programs that guarantee a certain percentage of jobs to these workers. It will make it easier for employers to bring in temporary overseas workers and to undermine local pay and conditions. Last question. So what does this actually do? The ABCC will achieve one thing, make our construction sites less safe. Studies have shown that during the last period of the ABCC, workplace deaths in construction nearly doubled. And if you want more information, go to standupspeakoutcomehome.org. Well, what, what I see, um, what I see the whole, um, ABCCC is basically, um, or I attack on, you know, workers on the CFMU because they're just too militant because they want to take away the power of that the union, um, that the union has, uh, over work sites. Um, and it could have very, you know, shrubbling, say, for example, implications in, say, um, work safety because, um, with this sort, with this sort of law, it will basically mean that you know the CFMU won't, um, union sort of officials won't be able to intervene in in cases where they find that the building's unsafe because their bosses will just say keep on working here even though there's a union, uh, even though the union could, um, prioritises um, work safety and yes, it's just absolutely but there's, there's a couple of other sinister things going on. It's not talked about very much. Um, one is that this is. Uh, a step taken by Turnbull because his popularity is starting to wane. His honeymoon's over. He's losing grip of the so-called popular vote, according to the polls. So he wants to go to the poll quickly, and this is one trigger for him. That's that's what people say. But 
you know, everyone can decide for themselves how true that is. But it, the more sinister and a more important issue is this is about smashing trade unions because they want to prepare the ground for the TPP and also to be able to increase, product, increase profit uh, margins and comply with the employer's needs. But the key thing is for them to get hold of the superannuation funds. That's what it is. The superannuation board is has got a board, and 50% of that is occupied by unions like the CFMEU. If they can demonize the unions, they can get rid of them from the board or the super, superannuation board. That's what they can do, mm. which means employers have majority hold. That is also another uh, factor that people are discussing, because what is this all about? And since the 1980s, union membership has declined to an extent of 15% dramatically reduced. So why is there so much fuss being made about this union? It makes you think almost like a conspiracy theory. You know, people have all sorts of ideas in their heads, but you, you look at the way the political move that's being made, it is completely draconian and is an absolute attack on union rights, workers' rights, safety, and, and you can keep going on and on. But this is a complete right-wing domination of this government, and there's also been talk about Malcolm Turnbull being captive to the extreme right wing within the Liberal Party as well. So leave that to the, to, to the listener to think about, and all those factors ruling the whole those, the political scene at the moment. And this double resolution elections is not far away, we expect. So that brings us to the end of the program. Dennis is left to go to uni, and. Um, we have to say goodbye. Yeah, goodbye. It's been a great program. Yes, and um, let's put on some music, giving the next program a bit of time to get ready. Mm-hmm.